Good afternoon and welcome to the Objectivity Question, Navigating Bias in the Classroom, a podcast being recorded before a live audience, probably better than a dead one, um, on the stage of Ives Concert Hall here on the Midtown campus of Western Connecticut State University. This is one of a series of podcasts sponsored by the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Western. This and all CELT podcasts will be posted to SoundCloud, to iTunes, and to CELT's Media Space Library, and made available through the soon-to-be-live CELT brand new website. So I want to thank you all for being here with a special thanks to the students and faculty who've made time in their busy, busy days for this experiment um, of live recording. Now it's my pleasure to turn the program over to Western's Associate Vice President for Academic Affairs, Dr. Ann Atkinson. Thanks, Leslie. I'll be moderating the discussion today and would like to begin uh, by providing some biographical information about the two faculty members who will be responding to questions which we hope will lead to a robust discussion about today's topic. Dr. Leslie Lindenauer is a professor in the Department of History and Non-Western Cultures. She teaches courses in Museum Studies, American Studies, and Women's Studies. Her fields of specialization include early American history, women's history, and public history. Her book, I Could Not Call Her Mother, The Stepmother in American Popular Culture, 1750 to 1960, was published by Lexington Books. She holds an AB in history from Brown and an MA and PhD in American history from New York University. Professor Terry Dwyer retired from the New York State Police after a 22-year career. His law practice has included several general practice areas over the years, including real estate, criminal commercial litigation, estate planning and administration, and public sector labor law. He teaches criminal law, constitutional law, criminal procedures and process, and legal issues in homeland security, and is the author of the textbook, Legal Issues in Homeland Security, U.S. Supreme Court Cases, Commentary and Questions. Professor Dwyer holds a BA from Fordham and a JD from Pace University School of Law. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. So let's begin. I'll situate the discussion by saying that as faculty, you help students navigate difficult topics, some that shift in focus from day to day in a contentious uh, political climate. And yet, as citizens, you readily take positions. In the classroom, you need to un help students unpack the reasons for the positions they hold, and in so doing, uh, need to separate an indefensible argument from those that you might be inclined to dismiss because of your political preferences and beliefs. So as a start, do you believe that objectivity is possible in the classroom? And if not, where does where you stand become an instance of bias? What do you need to guard against, Leslie? I suppose, well, first of all, I think we have to guard against the um, perception of bias in the classroom um, when that, that term itself is loaded. It's a value-laden term. You know, what does bias mean? I I'm not entirely sure that objectivity is possible, nor am I sure that it's necessarily desirable in the classroom. Um, I think that I've always considered myself a political person and not a partisan person in the classroom. I'm a partisan person outside the classroom, um, but I give myself permission to be political in the classroom. Does that result in bias? I would like to think that it doesn't. You know, all I can do is help my students do exactly what, you've, what you said there in the introduction, to help them unpack their own um, points of view, to help them construct logical arguments, and to create a safe environment in the classroom for anyone, regardless of point of view, to exercise their right to express that point of view. Okay. I, I have a slide that I showed at the beginning of every semester, and uh, it basically says that opinions and beliefs are for, poor substitutes for facts and the law. So since I mm -hmm. teach law courses, I want them to structure their arguments, give me the facts, give me the law, uh, and create an argument. Uh, my father, who's a lawyer, told me when you don't have the facts on your side, argue the law. When you don't have the law on your side, argue the facts. But either way, make an intelligent argument uh, and a critical argument. Um, 
opinions and beliefs, you know, that's when we get into the area, that's when we get into the area of bias. So uh, I really want them to structure their arguments, and I am the ultimate judge in the classroom. And sometimes I've, I've stood in front of the students and said, well, you just won your first legal argument because you, you supported you know, your, your position with the facts and, and the law uh, as should be done and, and what they read in most of the cases that uh, they encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as um, you know, bias in the classroom, I, I mean, it, it comes into play. Uh, students do come in with their preset uh, opinions and beliefs. I try and not to um, show mine. Uh, I think students sometimes come into my class because of my background thinking that, you know, I'm going to be pro-police. And <clears throat> certainly they see that I'm, I'm not. Uh, I, I tell them also in the beginning, I'm no apologist for police behavior. So, you know, we can have very broad-based discussions about, you know, police conduct and, and, and what's, what's going on without them having to feel that they have to tailor their beliefs or, or their comments to how I might feel. When I taught, you mentioned values, and when I taught ethics and communication when I was on the faculty at Keene State College, I would distribute a copy of the Constitution and uh, have my students read it to identify from this text what we value as citizens in a democratic republic. And I would use other less weighty documents as well, a college view book as an example, and say, what does this particular campus value in terms of, of what they're putting up front and what they're placing as the initial thing that they want you to understand. And these are biases of a sort, but they're also uh, habits of mind. Also worthy of note, I think, is that those things that we would say we value, justice, liberty, adaptability, inclusion, can vary in definition from person to person. So how is it understanding that we, uh, we have values in common, that we may think we have values in common and that they're very different, that we then help students to sharpen arguments without making them feel that we're dismissing them because we feel that the the walk to the conclusion is uh, too fast, <laughs> or the walk to the conclusion is too meandering. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I think that that's part of engaging students in a, in a civil classroom, right? It, you know, no, no, I was gonna say that no opinion or no argument deserves to be dismissed. I believe firmly that there are settled questions. Mm -hmm. um, and as a historian, I deal with settled questions all the time. And you know, there may be nuances that we have to take into consideration, but you know, we're not gonna have an argument about the Holocaust. You know, Holocaust denial is, is not acceptable. Um, I believe that climate change is a settled argument. Reactions to policy about climate change, well, that's open for discussion and can yield productive results. I think that, that there's rarely a, a moment where it's fair to dismiss a point of view but you can only allow, and this is one of the challenges in the classroom, we feel like we have so much material we have to cover, we rarely allow ourselves and our students the time that it sometimes takes to unpack that argument. And I think it's taken me a decade to feel comfortable saying, you know what? Giving that student or a group of students the space to unpack or develop or strengthen an argument is more important than for me covering, you know, Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hands of an angry God, for example, um, that I can yield to their need and their desire to learn how to function as a part of a democracy, and that that sometimes is more important than the content that I'm instructed to cover. Is it more difficult, Terry, do you think, when a student is especially passionate about something and yet you feel that the argument uh, lacks weight? Is it more difficult to pivot that, have that student pivot to a better evidence? Uh, well, I'll tell, you what I, I'll tell you what I do in class. When I have a student who's particularly passionate about uh, a certain position, I always make them argue the other position. Mm. Um, 
And the first thing I learned in law school, I knew I, I would be a, a lawyer, and a fairly good one, when I won my moot court argument first year of law school, because it was a case we were assigned, and it was a position I totally did not uh, agree in at all. And unfortunately, I was assigned by the professor the opposing view. And uh, I had to argue the opposing view. But I was so good at arguing the opposing view because I knew how strongly I felt uh, from my position. So I like to make students in class argue the positions that they're not comfortable with. Um, sometimes that helps them uh, reinforce their own views. Sometimes it makes them re you know, reconsider uh, their views. Um, you know, I'm, I like to just provide information. Uh, Leslie said there's settled questions. And in the law, we have you know, black letter law. It's just embedded and it's, it's rooted and, and that's it. Um, and I just make them use that as a tool, you know, argue the black letter law. Now, can you make the argument for your side? Fine. Again, give me the facts, give me the law. Stay within that structure. Once we get into the area of opinion and belief, we're getting outside the contours of the discipline. And, and that's, you know, I teach specifically in the law, so I want to stay within the parameters of the discipline. I'm going to turn my attention to uh, one of the history courses that you teach, the um, introductory history, which covers a lot of ground. Um, a narrative that is at times horrible. How do you help students come to terms with that? Well, in part, and you know, I'd like to say that students come to college, any college, not just Western, with you know, a full understanding of the sweep of American history. That's just not the case. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I have to be honest, when I introduce myself to my students, I, in almost every class, tell them who I am. And thereby, I hope, giving them permission to, to articulate who they are as well. Yeah, American history is ugly. Um, some of it, and some of it is gorgeous. And uh, you know, I'm quick to tell my classes that although I love the country in which I live, I am a proud and I consider myself a patriotic American, that that doesn't mean we can reinvent the past. We can only approach the past you know, from, from a couple of, of, of paths. I mean, certainly it's evidence-based. I mean, what I do as a historian, as a scholar, is evidence-based. But at the same time, I can't separate who I am as a scholar from who I am as a person. My identity, I have to be upfront and, and transparent with students. My identity shapes the choices that I make on my syllabus. It, it, you know, and if I choose to spend, as students who are here today actually will tell you, if I choose to spend a considerable amount of time talking about slavery in America, that's because I believe we can't understand who we are today unless we understand the history of slavery and its legacy with regard to constructions of race, for example, in America. So I think that gives both me and the students permission to contend with the difficult parts of American history in a way that's more productive than if, you know, if we just, you know, if I just subject them to lectures about the past. Tying together the idea of uh, difficulty and settled law. Terry, in your constitutional law class, you must wrestle with cases that have very little middle ground, uh, reproductive rights, capital punishment as two examples. How do you moderate those discussions? I've had a fun semester this semester. <laughs> um, I, I told my students at the beginning of con law uh, that I'm going to annoy them, and, and purposely mm -hmm. so. And uh, we've had some really lively discussions. Um, and what I like is, especially with, with con law this semester, I've had a lot of student, students that have been very open uh, in their opinions. Um, and you know, we, we touched upon the abortion issue. I have uh, students who were um, very devout Catholics and you know, expressed their, their view uh, on abortion. I have you know, women in the class who you know, are, are single mothers or you know, just different circumstances. So it, it created for a very lively conversation. It was a very respectful one, though. Um, and um, you, know, you, have to, um, you have to acknowledge people's beliefs. Um, you have to respect their beliefs, but you can still have a, um, you can still have an engaging and civil dialogue in the classroom. I, again, I moderate it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll maybe build it to a level where we get a little bit feisty, 
and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll tone it down. But in the beginning of semester two, I'll, I tell the students, look, uh, it's a university, it's civil discourse, you're not gonna disrespect each other, and I, I've never had any problem with that in the classroom. I mean, I think our students are exceptional in, in that regard, so. Um, but uh, with constitutional law, yeah, you get into some really, really fun areas. And uh, I'm somebody who I love to play devil's advocate, and I always like to, to push the envelope with, with some of the issues. So, but I think it creates for a lively class, and I think a more engaging class. And in, in light of that, the idea of tensions that, that you would say to your students that there will be civil discourse, and yet you're saying you need to fight hard to make your points, you, you, you can ramp things up, how do you know when it has gotten out of bounds? Well, well I mean, look, lawyers in the courtroom will be at each other's throat <laughs> in front of a judge, and then they'll go out for, for lunch afterwards. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's, you know it's, it's intelligent dialogue. It's, you know, discourse between, you know, two educated people. I mean, that's, you, you have to teach them to go out into the world that they're going to go out in and solve problems mm -hmm. and to encounter people that are not going to agree with them, and, and yet... Can you get along civilly with with somebody? I mean, that's that's really what it, what it amounts to, and that's that's most of the problems we encounter when people when people can't. Right. I think some of the problems we're seeing on campuses now is that you know you, you have two very polar sides, and and people are, are shouting at each other. They're not talking with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, we've lost the middle ground in this country. Right. Um, and you know, I, I tell my students. I had a discussion last night with my students in, in my con law class because I said, hey, I got to do this podcast tomorrow, and <laughs> I have no idea what I'm getting into. Uh, we talked a little bit about objectivity in the classroom. And, uh, you know, I said, what do you expect from a professor? They said, we expect to be educated. Um, I think professors go down a very uh, questionable path when they, when they indoctrinate or they try to indoctrinate the, their views upon the students. We're, we're there to provide alternate views for the students, but certainly not to, you know, bring them to our view. I think, you know, one of the issues that we contend with is the perception that a liberal fac faculty, and, and make no mistake, I mean, the studies that have been done by, by a number of sociologists in the past decade have demonstrated that, that if you ask faculty to identify themselves along a political spectrum, just slightly over 50% of faculty will identify themselves as left of center. But what hasn't been borne out by any studies is that you know, that any faculty member or that very many faculty members go into the classroom with the purpose of indoctrinating. Right? That um, whether or not we choose to share who we are and our political um, being with our students is a personal approach to education, but that very few, a, a tiny percentage of faculty um, and a tiny percentage of students who were parts of a number of sociological studies say that they were made to feel uncomfortable for having a point of view that was different from their faculty members. So um, there was a perception beginning probably with, probably with Bill Buckley in the 50s that the purpose of a liberal faculty was to go into universities which were, would become bastions of indoctrination. Um, and in fact, that hasn't been borne out by studies at all. You know, I, I, I hate labels, and, and I've mentioned that in class so many times, but unfortunately you have to use liberal, more conservative, and, and uh, so, you know, whatever. But the one thing I hate about labels is that when you label somebody, you objectify somebody. When you objectify somebody, you stop seeing them as a person, as an individual. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I like to think that my students are trying to figure me out. You know, that you know, maybe I, by appearance they think I'm very conservative, then sometimes they hear me in class and they think, wow, he's really liberal. Oh, God, he's a communist. Oh, my God, he's, <laughs> he's an arch-conservative. I, and I think some of them are really still trying to figure me out. But uh, I, I will step back sometimes to give, give my viewpoints, uh, like with abortion. I, we had a whole discussion in class, and you know, I stepped back, and because the student asked me, well, what, what's your belief? And I gave them my personal belief, my religious belief. I gave them my, my legal belief. But I said, that's my belief, you know. Uh, but I, I just hate the label because that also, aside from objectifying individuals, it just simplifies them. And I don't think we're so simple as, well, you're a liberal, you're a conservative, you're, you're this, you're that. You know? So I, I think that's a mistake, too, going into the classroom. And I try and get students to you know, look beyond those, those broad labels because they do come in self-identifying as, well, I'm this, I'm that. And, uh, and I was one of those. I mean, and I remember a professor I had at uh, college at Fordham University who was a complete antithesis to what I was. I mean, I was a Bronx Irish Catholic kid who wanted to become a cop. And I had this, doc, this, this professor uh, who's still teaching, who, you know, 
long hair, beard. I told my class last night he looked like Jesus and he wore sandals. And I took three courses with the guy. And, and, I, and I still remember him to this day. And he's my model for teaching because he allowed me to express myself. And, I, and he also brought me into the realm of thinking that, you know, I didn't engage before. And I was fortunate enough to meet him at a conference just a, a few years ago and kind of, you know, reconnect. And he goes, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, it's those encounters in the classroom that, yeah. that kind of really leave the impression and that are important because he was very, you know, strong in his viewpoints, very much uh, to, to one end of the spectrum. Uh, but he respected the whole class, and he really engaged us in the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And boy, he could really play an arch-conservative at times, too, so yeah. he was excellent. When I was in grad school, um, one of my favorite professors was, and again, speaking to your concern about labels, but he was a conservative. And uh, he was very disappointed when I told him that I was going to write a dissertation about a person who had served in the Roosevelt administration. He did not care for Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> And uh, he, uh, but he knew who I was as a person, and he knew about my family, and he cared about me as a person. And he, although he would find any number of jokes about Franklin Roosevelt to share with me, but it was um, a way in which we could navigate that relationship in, in a sense of, of mutual respect, sure. even though we disagreed with each other. Yeah, I think that, that you know, accepting that one of the lessons we all have to learn is how to listen um, is probably a hallmark of, of a positive educational experience for all of us, you know, for faculty and students alike. Yeah. Let's talk a little about um, your course in uh, witch hunting in uh, New England and how you must have to talk about gender and, uh, and how that period informs current day and how that can be fraught with peril <laughs> in terms of, of political concerns. So. Yeah, it's actually, it touches on issues that I would never have anticipated that go well beyond um, the historical construction of gender. Uh, you know, with any, I'm a historian and for me, and not all historians believe this, but for me, one of the fundamental approaches to history is to help students find themselves in the past and to help them find history in the present, and to make that journey um, at least a little bit personal, to make those links between past and present. So yeah, you, you can't, so you start out with the facts. So you start out with the statistics. So you know, students start with the fact that 75% of the people accused and ultimately executed for witchcraft, not just here, but in Europe, were women. You know, it's a genderless crime when the laws, the capital laws against witchcraft were um, executed or passed in each of the colonies and in, throughout Europe, it didn't designate that women were, were witches. Um, witches were any you know, person who, according to a variety of definitions, stepped outside the norm. But the, in point of fact, 75% of them are women. So yes, we can't avoid talking about gender. We can't avoid talking about what it means to make choices that um, vilify a specific gender. So in fact, that makes it really easy to make connections between the past and present, right? Um, it makes it really easy to ask students to explore what it meant to be a woman running for president in 2016. You know, what's the language that's used when we talk about women? Well, there are connections between the past and present, and it just takes time and energy and a will to uncover research um, to make those connections, you know, through rhetoric that mm -hmm. allow students entry to a time period that seems so incredibly foreign otherwise, right? Thinking about uh, Terry. Uh, criminal procedures and process and discussion of the 14th Amendment can have political implications as parties navigate tensions between security and liberty. And by that, I mean that Democrats tend to err on the side of liberty and Republicans tend to err on the side of security. How do you introduce that discussion with students? Um, they, in the beginning of the semester, we read uh, Herbert Packard's article about the uh, criminal justice process and the dual model the due process model and the crime control model. And uh, we talk about that early on when talking about the 14th Amendment. Uh, you know, we covered the three different clauses, but specifically, uh, you know, due process. 
um, uh, in that conversation. A big topic, which I d uh, just covered in class, was the stop and frisk. And um, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of misinformation out there about stop and frisk. And you know, students have been told in some classes that stop and frisk is is uh, unconstitutional. And I said, well, it's clearly not the case. You know, you're misinformed. Uh, Terry versus Ohio is still good law. But I said, there's a difference between good law and bad policy. Stop and frisk as applied has been ruled unconstitutionally applied in certain circumstances. And there's a case out of New York, Floyd versus the city of New York. And, you know, just in that discussion, I bring them back to, look, you know, once again, opinion, belief, give me facts, give me law. You know, I have read Floyd versus the city of New York. It's one of like nine or 11 companion cases. It's uh, like close to a 200 page decision, I think. Um, and, and a lot of those, those stops were ruled constitutional. In fact, the named plaintiff, Floyd, there was no cause of action against the New York City Police Department. However, other stops, there were. Um, so, you know, a lot of students will come in. And again, now if you have students of color, uh, you know, I always ask in class when I get to stop and frisk, how many of you have been stopped and frisked? And, you know, some classes I have a few kids, but uh, I remember one semester I had a student who raised his hand and um, he was from Brooklyn. He'd been stopped 11 times, Jeez. or nine, nine or 11 times, but uh, we broke down every one of those stops in class. And I think it was kind of eye-opening for the students that were there because they get, they watched a classmate go through every stop. And I told them, two of them were legitimate stops. The other seven or nine, I think it was nine in total, uh, we're not. And, um, you know, he grew up in a high crime neighborhood in Brooklyn. He was a black male. Uh, and I think, you know, just having those discussions in class, too, where, you know, students kind of get a window into somebody else's life, um, it, it makes the law. Look, we can look at Terry versus Ohio and very sanitize, just read the case and talk about stop and frisk. When now you ask the question, who's been stopped? What's the particulars? And I do that with, with, with any case. And then you can, then the 14th Amendment makes a little bit more sense. Then due process, equal protection, things, you know, these, these concepts we talk about have a more real feel to them. So uh, I always think experience is the greatest teacher. And when you can link that in the classroom to even the student's own experience, that really informs the, the, the dialogue in the class. Thank you. Do we have some questions from our audience? If you could. Uh Walk to one of the microphones if you have a question or want us to consider a difficulty. Hey, um, I'm Naomi Toffness. I'm a librarian here at Western. And um, so I look at things through the information literacy scope. Uh, and we happen to have a law professor and a history professor here. So um, I was just wondering if you could talk about primary documents and how your students deal with them. Thank you. Sure, I'll start. But um, first, to start by saying that the last podcast we did, which is recorded and up on SoundCloud, uh, was a podcast on information literacy that um, included Tom Schmiedel, um, representing the library and information science um, on, on information literacy and, and fake news. Um, and yeah, the place we have to go uh, in history class, certainly, and I'll speak only to that, are the primary documents. You know, the introduction to history course that I teach here is focused almost entirely on primary sources. And so if you can't construct an argument using those sources, then you haven't made a historic argument. Um, and they're tough. These, you know, unpacking those sources, and there are rubrics for, for understanding primary sources. They change slightly when, depending on the period we're dealing with. You know, 17th century documents are really hard to understand. And so it takes a little bit of hand-holding. Sometimes it takes the students holding my hand to help them, you know, guide them through the process of unpacking those primary sources, but they figure centrally into any topic that I teach. You know, in upper division courses, we're considering critically more secondary literature. You know, I'm asking students to read some of the same stuff I read as an undergraduate and a graduate student and try to understand how history and interpretations of history change over time because of the context in which those interpretations emerges from. But, but um, the primary source is always at the heart of what we do. And at the heart of, you know, of what we do in the history classroom often 
happens right in the university's own archives, right, as a source of primary sources that they may not be able to see anyplace else in their, in their career. We have a legal writing and research class, which I, which I don't teach, but, uh, you know, the material I use is just case law and, and statutes. Um, so, I mean, if they were in a, a research class, they'd certainly be directed to go to the library or, or go to LexisNexis or Westlaw to look up um, uh, case law um, and to shepherdize to look for, you know, any uh, dissenting or, or um, contrary opinions. Uh, but I always direct them back, you know, when a student will make a statement, uh, uh, I had a student in class, we got into a discussion about tinted windows, you know, and, and he says they're perfectly legal, and I said, show me the statute, show me the law. He says, well, they're perfectly legal. I said, that's your opinion, show me the statute, show me the law. And, I, and this took place in New York, and, and uh, a student in class, right where we're having this discussion, brings right up on the computer and reads, oh, statute, gave him a section of vehicle and traffic law and said, yeah, no, you're wrong. And, uh, but it's important just in that discussion that, again, you may have an opinion about something, but here is the statute. Read the statute. What does the statute say? And typically in class, uh, I always direct students, well, what does the statute say? What does the case law say? But again, go back to the statute. Um, and, uh, you know, if it's, not, if it's not in black and white there, then I'm sorry. <laughs> no argument. Uh, yeah, the question for Dr. Lindenau. At the beginning of the podcast, you made a distinction between uh, political and partisan. And do you mean that uh, you allow yourself to be political in that you allow political discussion? Or what is that? Okay, I just wanted to clarify. Yeah, that, that clarification is, is probably important. Um, I, I probably mean it in more than one way. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I allow political discussion to happen. I want political discussion to happen, and it depends on the course. And I allow myself to articulate political opinions that are backed up by, by evidence um, or shaped by evidence. So what I don't want is a partisanship that results in the polarization that we end up with today. In other words, I might identify myself as someone who believes um, in a specific issue, and I'm willing to talk about what that means, the relationship between the legacy of slavery and the construction of race today, for example. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I want to talk about a particular party that, are, that you know, expresses my point of view about an issue. We're talking about argument based on issues and not necessarily on, on partisan construction of those issues. Hi, my name is Richard. Uh, question about slavery, and your and your in your class. Do you ever talk about black slaves, black slave owners? I mention it um, because that was pretty that was a pretty serious problem back then too. And yet nobody seems to want to go after that, talk about that, or even uh, try to get repatriations for black slave owners. Only white slave owners, and I find that very racist viewpoints. So. Um, this has come up in class before, and I will say that um, what I would ask a student to do is to um, find and share evidence that supports the fact that um, black ownership of people of color was a significant problem, and there is in my, um, my research and my work as an early American historian, no evidence to support that it's a significant problem. Well, were there black slave owners? Absolutely. Yes, they were. But, but there's a handful, and there were, there were black, there were, you know, middling sort, middle class, people of color who owned, you know, Indians. Mm -hmm. Yes, but it's a... It's and Indians, a, too, had slaves as well. A small so why, why percentage. So why is it only um, white people that want, they, they want to go after white people for, uh, for repatriations? I think, see, the problem I find right now is that we are not equal in this country. We have such a division that we need to bring everything out to the table and put everything on the table and be equal. And there's no, no if, ands, or buts. Political correctness is dead. It's over with. That's it. That was the last president. Now it's time to get on to something new. And, and into that, into that whole, whole point, will you as a vice president, I guess you're vice president here, would you or the lawyer or you, would any of you here support having Milo Yiannopoulos come to this college and his dangerous tour? 
Would you support him coming here and standing on this stage? I think it's, it's difficult to answer without uh, having the context for why that would occur. So I'm not trying to push that off. Oh, yes, but, you are. Yes, you are. abstractly... It's like, it, it's like what's, happen what's happening now at Berkeley College, what's happening all across this country on college campuses, the lack of both sides being honest and open. And, and, and this is basically what this discussion is about. What kind of discussions can we have in the classroom? What, you're saying what's valid, what's, good, what's a valid point of view, what's not valid? Well, everything is valid because now it's a new America. You know, we got rid of the old, we're in with the new, and everything's on the table. So if you're going to have somebody here... Um, but, everything, but everything isn't on the table. Well, and, it has to be. And that, and that was the point that I was making about your question as to whether I would support that, that the context out of which that would arise would be a determining factor in how I would respond to the question, that it, it can't, the question can't exist in a vacuum for me. And, and for the lawyer, too, I mean, would that be a legal question as to if um, you have one side here represented and, and the other side, like Milo, uh, if they, they ban Milo from the school or from any college, is that a legal question? Well, let me, ask, let me just uh, say this. I'm not totally familiar with the individual you're talking about, but I will say this. I probably tend to take a more of an absolutist First Amendment view, like Justice Hugo Black. And um, if somebody wanted to fund it, and bring him on campus, I would have no problem. Uh, Can we hold you to that? I, sir, I don't even know who you are. You can't hold me to anything, <laughs> uh, first of all. And, uh, and I certainly don't have say over anything of that nature. You ask me my opinion, I'm giving you my opinion. And it's strictly my opinion. Yeah. Um, but with that being said, uh, I talked in class actually last night about a book <clears throat> called Defending My Enemy. And I wish I knew the author's name. I couldn't recall it last night. And I can't recall it now. But the author was an individual who was the president at the time of the American Civil Liberties Union. And the ACLU represented the neo-Nazis who wanted to march in Skokie, Illinois. Skokie, Illinois was a predominantly uh, Jewish community, uh, many Auschwitz survivors. And uh, many of the people uh, within the local uh, ACLU chapters across the country were uh, adamant that you know he should not defend uh, the um, the neo Nazis in their march in Skokie, and he said, "Why not? Uh, this is what we fought for. This is part of our democracy, uh, and uh, this is this is what it's about. Let you know counter viewpoints uh, be put forward. It's for the public to accept or reject it." Uh, so again, I would probably say I'm more on the side of the author of Defending My Enemy and more on the side of, of Black, where I'm, I'm more of a uh, First Amendment absolutist, because I think you get into dangerous territory when you start to shut down speech, any speech, and then when you start to define something as hate speech, how far do we go in defining what is hate speech? Do we create new labels for what we're going to consider to be hate speech? Uh, I say, if you want to bring somebody like that on campus, let the students decide. Our students are intelligent enough to make their choices and their opinions known. Uh, but uh, I would say that I think you get into very dangerous territory when you start to censor in this country. And that goes to anybody. So I hope that answers your question. Hi, um, I'm Veronica Canossas. I'm the Director of Library Services here. And um, we tend to, we try to be all about objectivity always in the library. You come in, you get the information that you need um, with the help with the assistance of, of professionals. But they often, um, at least in my experience, do try to, um, students have come in and try and pigeonhole me, try and pigeonhole us. In other words, they're feeling us out. What do you think? Where should I go with this? Do you agree with this? And I'm wondering if you get challenged like that in the classroom and what is the best way to deal with that? Because sometimes I'm like, well, I don't, just, yeah, don't ask me that, but um, I'd love a more elegant way to kind of respond um, while respecting, I don't want to feed them the information, in other words, um, or I don't want them to key something for that I'm saying and bring it somewhere else. So how do you deal with that? It's a really good question. I think um, there are all sorts of strategies for approaching that. I mean, I think that I, I don't know that I have ever 
decline to respond to a student who's asked me how I felt about something or my political approach to an issue, but it does open up the opportunity to model for students how I came to that um, and what took me in the direction of a particular research point, you know, the evidence that I depended on to construct my own worldview or my own opinion um, or considered um, approach to a problem or an issue. So if you model that, then it becomes a part of the educational experience rather than, you know, indoctrination or answering a question for them, you know. Yeah, I, I just to jump on what Leslie said, I, I would agree. I, I've oftentimes explained to my students how I arrived at a certain position. If they, if they ask me, um, you know, uh, what, what my opinion is, and, and like I said, sometimes after a lecture, students will say, well, professor, how do you feel? Or what's your, you know, opinion? You, you've kind of been playing cat and mouse with us. So, um, and uh, like the death penalty, I'm somebody who was for the death penalty. Um, I investigated cases in New York. The last five cases I worked uh, were all, would have been death penalty cases, and all the defendants would have been put to death, except we got rid of it in New York, and now they're all serving life in prison. But um, my attitude changed uh, the latter part of my career, and then uh, after I left the job, and I've been involved in a lot of research with Dr. Kane on, on the death penalty and, and law enforcement's attitudes. And, uh, you know, students come into class with very set opinions on the death penalty. And I know what my opinion was when I was a 20-something and I was in college. Um, and lots of times in, in the dialogue, I tell them how I came to my, my position. But I said, that's my journey. You have a journey of your own. But, you know, just here, here are the facts. Um, so again, you know, maybe, maybe they might learn through my journey. Uh, certainly, I'm not there to change anybody's opinion, but just tell them how, you know, I came to change uh, my opinion. And that, that, that usually, Get some out of my hair. <laughs> Please. Hello. Um, do you think you could talk a little bit about your personal experience with jurisprudential philosophy and bias in legal education? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a jurisprudential philosopher, and uh, you're taking me back to some uh, 1L courses. Um, I mean, there is in bias. I mean, what kind of bias is he talking about in the law? I mean, there's an implicit bias in the criminal justice system. You know, we talk about that in class. I don't think he can avoid it. And I think it may, you know, coincide with some of your stuff about slavery. Um, and again, these are things that, and look, you know, my opinions are, and I'm, I'm not a historian. You know, I always tell people I'm just a dumb lawyer, you know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, experience, like I said, is a great teacher. And, and the thing that, you know, changed my view in a in, a lot along the way is what I saw as as a detective with the state police and the cases that I encountered. Um, you know, there's certain realities in the system where if you're, you know, living, breathing, educated human being, you just have to have to acknowledge. Um, there's an incredible bias in the law right right now and has been for years and, and something we don't talk about, but that's ec economic bias. I mean, I, I always say in, in class and not to be, uh, you know, facetious, but you get as much justice in this country as you can afford. And it's just, it's a definite truism. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about those, those things in, in, in class. Um, you know, I don't get too heavy into the uh, HLA Hart and the, the Dorkin and all, all those guys with the, you know, the legal philosophy uh, discussions. But that is a good course that we should have. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but I, I mean, sure, there, there are definitely certain biases in the law. But you know, the, the thing about the law too, which I try and tell students, the law is there for good, and, and we can do a lot of good with the law, but we've also used it for a lot of bad. Uh, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal, Korematsu versus, you know, in the United States, which is still good law. Uh, we had the Non-Detention Act of 1971, which kind of negated Korematsu, but, you know, it's still a binding precedent. And, you know, we use the law to, to take a, a race of people and basically create, you know, what the Nazis called our, our American concentration camps. So, uh, and then you just have to look at Nazi Germany and the Nuremberg Laws and to see how, you know, one of the most advanced legal uh, cultures in the world at the time, uh, who gave us a 19th century legal scholar, P.J.A. Fjordback, and, and, you know, legality principle, how they became just corrupted uh, seemingly overnight, and they used, uh, you know, positive law to 
uh, basically enslave and, and, and kill a whole race of people. So, you know, I, I make students aware of the, the good applications, the positive applications, and then the negative applications of, of the law. So, you know, we do get into some discussions about legal positivism, legal realism, and, and those schools. Please. Hi, my name is Avril Maines, and I'm a professor of political science and actually uh, participated in the first podcast on fake news, so I'm really thrilled to be here again. Uh, I, I wanted to speak to a student of mine named Zach Schroeder, who actually brought this subject up in a research methods class that I'm teaching uh, and decided to research that this semester. I think one of the things that's very difficult for students is to determine what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. And then if they feel that they're experiencing something that's not appropriate, what to do about it. And so the first thing I just wanted to briefly mention, share, was the results of Zach's study. On the one hand, it was brief. He had a very small sample. On the other hand, he found two things that I think were really compelling. One was that um, students, of, regardless of the per political persuasion, are disengaged, disenchanted, and feel disrespect for courses if they feel they're experiencing bias. Uh, so one of the things specifically he found was that liberal students are more upset about seeing a liberal bias in class than their conservative counterparts. So number one, that issue, that it does cause students to feel disengaged. Number two, students' interest in politics is increasing in in college. And so one, I'm suggesting a title for his study, which is Don't Snuff Out the Candle, as it's just getting going. Um, and so I just, I think that it is, we do as faculty have a very big responsibility. We have a really powerful platform and to not abuse that platform, you know, you're, you're, the difference between partisan and political, let's say, I think is such a good distinction. Um, and we do need to role model and teach students what the difference is between what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. You know, I, I had heard that a faculty, specifically certain faculty, saying things during the election cycle that were repeating personal attacks on the two presidential candidates in class only in a partisan way. That is not appropriate. If you want to discuss the nature of those allegations and what is behind them and how they may be affecting the race, but to repeat one-sided political partisanship in class is not, not appropriate. And excuse me, I'm, I'm making a long statement, I apologize. Um, I also interestingly think that it's not exclusive to political science, but so one of the pieces of advice I would give to my students and I'd ask the panel what their opinion is, what do you tell students who feel that they've experienced inappropriate bias? What I tell them is, I take teaching evaluations very seriously, and I think that is a really that is an appropriate place um, to to c contact someone uh, who is in charge of hiring issues, and also to very clearly say on teaching evaluations um, what it is that your experience has been. So I encourage students to speak up about this issue, um, and also to f for faculty to really speak to. Um, you know, to, to check ourselves um, and to check each other uh, in terms of determining the difference between political and partisan. So what would you recommend that students do if they feel they face this problem? Talk to the professor. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I'm very open with my students and, uh, you know, and I was not that professor because I made fun of both of them equally. <laughs> um, my students know I actually did vote for my dog. I wrote in my dog, Little Jack Russell Terrier. She, she just didn't have the support. Um, but um, <laughs> this time, yeah, <laughs> we're going for the next one. Um, you know, I mean, my students, I feel, can come to me, and they, they come to me with, with lots of things. Uh, and I always say my class is like Vegas. What happens here stays here, you know. Um, but, um, you know, I, again, I think you have to have an open, uh, an open door with your students and, and an open just format for them to come in and feel comfortable enough, enough with you. I'm very self-censoring. Um, which is kind of hard for me, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I'm very aware of my role and and you know the image that I have to project for the students and my responsibility to the students. So you know, I drive home at night after lectures or, or after classes, and I'm always constantly reviewing in my head, kind of like as I did as a cop do, a cop as well or as an attorney, reviewing everything in my head, and you know, what did I say? And I'm very hypercritical of of my own performance. So. Um, I'm very cognizant of, of what I say in class, um, but you know, to me, the, the utmost respect has to go to the, to the students. Uh, you know, I've always felt that you know, teaching is like the, the greatest profession that, that you can have. I mean, I feel blessed to be where I'm at. 
Um, and, and I don't take it lightly. But the thing I love about it is that I'm a continual learner. I learn so much from the students. I mean, the students will throw something out in class. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. School me. <laughs> I'll give them the platform for five or ten minutes. Uh, because if I don't know it, maybe somebody else doesn't know it. And oftentimes, you know, I can turn that into uh, a lecture. And, you know, years ago, students brought up um, Family Guy. Oh, professor, ever watch Family Guy? Oh, it's great. Peter Griffin. You know, I was able to use that throughout the remainder of the semester, different episodes, because they got me watching it, and we worked it into criminal law lectures, and it's still a criminal law question that I use on exams here and there. You know, so, again, if you have that openness, I think it's really conducive to the whole environment for student and faculty. And, and certainly if, you know, if it's reached the point where a student doesn't feel comfortable talking about bias with a professor who he or she feels has been biased, the evaluation forms are, you know, I don't, I don't know anyone on this faculty who wouldn't take seriously a student who wrote on an evaluation that they felt um, shut down because of, a, you know, the bias of the faculty member in the classroom. No, you know, uh, it would be, you know, there, it, it, there is a line. A number of years ago, I got an evaluation form that on one side said she talked too much about slavery, and on the other side said she talked too much about people. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, well then clearly there's nothing I can do to change the way the student feels about history or the way I taught it. But, but in general, I agree with Averill that, that evaluations, I take them seriously and they've, you know, they can be, a, they can be you know, a, a heads up for a faculty member. When I taught the ethics and communication class on the first day, I would have the students uh, write a code of ethics for the class. And they would say, well, there'll be a code of ethics for the students, but a code of ethics for the faculty as well. And we would navigate that space. And then uh, I would, uh, one sort of funny example, um, I said that we, the phone should be turned off in class. And that was on the student side. And the student, one student raised her hand and she said, well, that should be on your side too. And I said, do you have faculty who are answering their phones in class? And she said, well, in some instances, yeah. And I thought, really, you should be all in. Yeah. <laughs> that shouldn't be happening. I mean, that is, and so that was surprising for me. But just to work together on what we expect of each other in the classroom. Well, I'd like to conclude with uh, a remark by Peter Novick, who is the author of uh, the book that inspired the title for this podcast, and it's That Noble Dream, The Objectivity Question, and the American Historical Profession. And he says about identifying and critiquing views as being rational or irrational, that it is best to extend such treatment even-handedly, as much to those of, as much to the thought of those with whom I am in sympathy as to those whose views I dislike. So, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.